Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week we spend some time in England as the political fallout caused by the Anglo-Boer War grows and we meet an unusual man called Magistrate Kidwell. But first, Emily Hobhouse finally presented her report on the concentration camps to the English public after government officials gave her the cold shoulder. While she was determined to be heard and for the government to act, the reality is the British political leadership was equally determined to force the Boers to surrender and believed that the deaths of civilians was part of what in modern discourse we call collateral damage. More importantly, there is censoring all news from South Africa in an effort to hide just how many civilians were dying. Hobhouse's 15-page report to the Committee of the Distress Fund was first circulated amongst the members before being released to the public in early June 1901. Her conclusion about the camps was that they were cruel and should be abolished. She also warned that the black population was beginning to take advantage of the ongoing chaos in South Africa and that would bode ill for any future British governor. This was the report coupled with her personal diary and testimony that sent a shockwave through the pro-Boers in England. Lloyd George intensified his attack on the government in a debate on the 18th of June in Parliament. The report also dislodged opposition leader Campbell Bannerman from the tightrope he'd been walking between two different liberal views in Britain at the time, forcing him into an increasingly radical position. On the 14th of June, Campbell Bannerman had attended a Liberal Party dinner at the Holborn restaurant, where he publicly said he was sickened by the policy of sweeping women and children into concentration camps, as the Spaniards had done in Cuba. There were overtones of race here, how the white women were being treated like mulattoes and the blacks of Cuba, although he didn't quite put it that way. He raged, A phrase is often used that war is war, but when one comes to ask about it, one is told that there is no war going on. That is not war. The crowd in the restaurant laughed. When is war not war? He asked those assembled in Holborn. When it is carried on by methods of barbarism in South Africa. That phrase resonated throughout the world at that time. A few days after Campbell Bannerman's outburst at the restaurant, Lloyd George pinned down the government to a short debate in the House of Commons that was set for the 18th of June. He wanted the matter discussed as a matter of urgency because he said of the alarming rate of mortality amongst the women and children there. During Creston time, Broderick, who represented the government, had been forced to reveal more accurate numbers of the incarceration in the camps of South Africa, which was an admission that actually shocked neutrals. There were now 67,127 people, black and white, in the camps, which of course was far higher than the government had previously revealed. And of course, at this stage, that was not the correct figure. The figure was closer to 100,000. The mortality figure was also incorrect, but still shocking. Broderick said 336 had died in the camps, and the fact that more than three-quarters of these were children further shocked the British liberal establishment. Lloyd George stood up in the House and said, The answer given today proves that, so far from being the result of temporary conditions, it is growing worse. How little did he really know? In a while, I'll explain how the numbers were actually accelerating as midwinter brought a surge in disease-related deaths. The children of the Boers were now dying in droves, while their fathers fought for an unattainable dream of isolation and self-rule. Each day they fought a struggle against an overwhelming force. More of their tiny sons and daughters were dying. 
And each day that the British ignored basic hygiene in the camps, their complicity in this death struggle intensified. What Campbell, Bannerman and Lloyd George did was to extrapolate the fatality rate over a year, which meant 12% of those in the camps were dying, compared to the British soldier death rate from disease in Bloemfontein, which was around 5%. The dreadful debate around statistics began, which of course dehumanised the real suffering as both political sides argued about where the percentage point really lay. Back in South Africa, the rate of children dying in Irene concentration camp, for example, had doubled in less than a month. And watching this while taking copious notes was Johanna van Warmelo, who was tracking events in her three distinct diaries, military, love and public. We'll come back to her in a moment. But first, Louis George stood in the British House of Parliament and said for the first time that the government was pursuing a policy of extermination against women and children, or what we'd call ethnic cleansing in modern terms. While this was an overstatement, for those shivering and dying in South Africa, it was an accurate reflection of how they felt. Lloyd George pointed out that the government could not be accused of willfully trying to exterminate the Boer women and their children, but that the concentration camp policy would have that effect anyway. He blasted the government in a speech which echoes down the ages with its historic power. I say this is the result of a deliberate and settled policy. It is not a thing which has been done in 24 hours, for it has taken months and months to do it. The military authorities knew perfectly well it was to be done, and they had ample time to provide for it. They started clearing the country about six months ago, and it is disgraceful that in five or six months after that, children should start dying at the rate of hundreds per month. It's a vital note in history. It's a warning to all aggressive governments worldwide. You throw women and children into camps where they are concentrated, then reduce hygiene and medical support, they will begin to die. Why, asked Lloyd George back in June 1901, pursue a policy victimizing children? What evil lurks in the minds of political leaders that you would use an ethnic basis to commit a human rights crime against little people who are pawns of the adults? Why pursue this disgraceful policy, asked the man of the 19th century, against the most fragile when the state committing this crime is trying to hold itself up as an example of advanced civilization, the empire state of the moment. By every rule of civilized war, he raged, we were bound to treat the women and children as non-combatants. And here again is a chilling warning to any state presently conducting such a campaign against women and children. And as with all campaigns rooted in despicable immediate political agenda, it lives forever in the hearts of the people who do not forget. So in South Africa, the British concentration camp reinforced the hatred between people who had to live together, and it created an historical narrative of righteousness, which is virtually eternal. When people who by geography and history are ordained to live as neighbours, the actions of a few men who use civilians as bargaining chips are really dooming their own sons and daughters to an intractable revenge. During the Anglo-Boer War, every child who died became a martyr for the Boers. It motivated the people as a whole to fight on forever, if needs be, which they did through the Union of South Africa in 1910, through to the first nationalist government of 1948, half a century after the end of the Boer War. 
It was thrown in my face during an officer course in the Defence Force in 1981. This narrative was used during apartheid, where blacks and the English liberals in South Africa were demonised by the far right, and the camps were their ideological ace up their sleeves. What does this say for those who are forcing children into camps along whatever border they believe is their sacrosanct right to protect today in 2019? Do you realise that the families of these abused children will be your enemies for many decades to come? Demography and reality have an unfortunate way of tying those who forget history into knots. And history has cold lessons when it comes to revenge, and when you target people's children, revenge is certain. Lloyd George, for all his contradictions and his vacillating, his human frailty, his odious pomposity, sanctimonious and politically opportunistic way, was speaking the truth that day in the House in 1901. We want to make loyal British subjects of these people. Brave men will forgive injuries to themselves much more readily than they will insults, indignities and wrongs to their women and children. It will always be remembered that this is the way British rule started here and this is the method by which it was brought about. His speech was roundly condemned by conservatives but roundly supported by Irish Republicans and radicals. Campbell Bannerman was on a radical roll and wasn't finished yet. The whole system, he summed up, is barbarous. The British government, however, seemed to ignore the warnings considering Lloyd George and Campbell Bannerman's protestations merely rooted in political determinism rather than an objective truth. But this would change by the end of June, and as usual, the reason was money. The Boer War was literally beginning to break the bank, and it forced the government to increase income tax earlier in 1901. But even that could not cover the shortfall, and they were forced to borrow money on the local and global market. Apart from the Napoleonic Wars, it was the most financially ruinous in British history, and the militarists would be forced to toe the line. And in an odd twist, the High Commissioner and previous Governor of the Cape, Alfred Milner, was in London in June 1901. Remember, he was on the same ship as Emily Hobhouse. Behind the scenes at this stage, he was slowly convincing his government to move away from the hardline treatment of Boers, and the money situation helped him. Milner was aware that after the war, he would have to govern the whole territory, Boers, British and Black, and believed in negotiation. As we'll see in a week, he would get his way, and the uncompromising stance of Lord Kitchener would be the military man's undoing. But, in Parliament, Campbell Bannerman took a beating on the 18th of June. There was, as Thomas Pakenham describes in his book Boer War, a downpour of heavy voting for the government and its position in South Africa. 252 voted against Lloyd George and his motion, and 149 in favour, with a large number of abstentions, and for now it appears the hardliners had one out. What was still missing was the real mortality figure, and these the commander-in-chief in South Africa, Lord Kitchener, was at pains to hide from the general public. No journalist was allowed anywhere near the concentration camps and his censors were hard at work redacting anything that mentioned death rates of children in particular. It would only be in August 1901 that these figures emerged, almost two months after the debate in the House of Commons, and by then the numbers of blacks and whites in the camps was well over 110,000 and the number of deaths over 9,000 and accelerating. Sitting inside one of these camps, writing copiously, was Johanna van Warmelo, 
By late June, she was totting up the numbers of children dying and she suddenly realized they doubled in three weeks. There are several cases of pneumonia. Then I have cases of bronchitis, malaria, pleurisy, to say nothing of measles and influenza. The dead children were piling up at Irene outside the capital of Pretoria. When I came here, first the average was 12 or maybe 15 a week, and last week it was 27, she wrote. She sat writing furiously in her tent when another case was brought in. Diary entry, June 24, 1901. Another child, a boy of about 11, was brought from our ward to the hospital this morning at 10 o'clock. He was dead by 12. The British government preferred not to know. Campbell Bannerman did not know yet, and Emily Hobhouse had been ignored despite her full support of all things British. It was a case of shooting the messenger. In another historical twist, when these numbers became known, all the courageous veterans of this war on the British side were tainted by the treatment of civilians. They were no longer heroes, but oppressors of children. A bit like Vietnam, another echo in time. Things had quietened down on the felt summit, as midwinter meant little food for horses and virtually all water dried up. South Africa is a summer rainfall region, as I explained last podcast, but there were pockets of resistance. One was Commandant Peter Kritzinger, who had been dispatched by General Christian de Wett to sow as much mayhem in the northeastern Cape as possible. He was one of the three main commandos who had crisscrossed between the Orange Free State and the Cape over the past six months, and his stories are legendary. For example, he managed to infiltrate the Cape on 23rd of May, and five days later, on the 28th of May, he appeared as if by magic at Jamestown, which is a small village near Aliwell North in the semi-desert area known as the Clane or Little Karoo. This was a larger commander than he led a month ago. More than 900 men rode with him into the northeast Cape. The British commander in Jamestown did not know the full strength of this Boer unit. He was a magistrate called Kidwell, who appears to be an ethically-minded man, as you'll hear. Kritzinger sent him a message under a white flag saying he should surrender, but Kidwell replied saying if the Boers wanted the town, they would have to conquer it. Kritzinger waited four days, then attacked the guards stationed to the south of the town in a surprise move as they began to believe the Boers had moved on. Eventually, Kidwell surrendered. The British lost four dead, five wounded, 130 captured. After the British surrendered, Magistrate Kidwell took the oath of neutrality in order to protect two black spies who had helped the British in recent weeks. Had he not done so, they would have been shot. The Boers could not execute these men, but his actions did not go unpunished by the British. After the Boers left and the British reoccupied Jamestown in June 1901, he was stripped of his rank. Kritzinger, meanwhile, had seized a huge quantity of loot, including ammunition and pom-pom guns, but some of his men had fallen foul of poor Boer discipline. A few remained behind against his orders and then spent two days drinking the local hotel out of its liquor. I guess they were tired of the daily humdrum of riding on the felt in sub-zero morning conditions. Unfortunately for these men, the British reinforcements arrived and walked in on the drunk Boers and captured them. But this crazy sequence of events had not ended. According to reports, the British themselves fell foul of poor discipline, which had become a problem, as I explained last week, and also helped themselves to the hotel's finest bottles. The Boer prisoners took the gap and managed to escape, leaving one man behind who failed to stagger to safety. 
But Kritzinger was incensed that the British magistrate had used an oath of neutrality to save what he thought were treasonous spies, the two black men. So, on June 13th, he issued a proclamation in the Stoltenbach region that the Boer annexation of the area back in November 1899 still held true that in future all Boers and blacks working as spies for the British would be shot on sight. But easier said than done. Kritzinger was now finding the going extremely difficult as Lord Kitchener's drives and his new blockhouses he'd built across the country meant mobility was being restricted. This was highlighted by an incident on the 15th of June when a British unit surprised one of Kritzinger's lieutenants, Gert van Rienen, near the village of Mareburg. He was nabbed along with 22 men. It was a prison of war camp for van Rienen and the 22. Then the Kakamas rebel commando in the middle of the Karoo also suffered a severe loss with seven killed and 20 wounded in a clash with the border scout patrol. The significance of that unit was that there were many black and coloured soldiers fighting on horseback alongside the British soldiers, something that was not lost on the Boers, who now realised they were facing more than just English troops. They were facing units strengthened by blacks who were being armed and were willing to fight for the British as mercenaries, as well as some burghers who changed sides. Meanwhile, the generals met once more at Weiterfall, near Stanerton, in the southeast Transvaal, on the 19th and 20th of June. President Steyn of the Free State was in attendance, along with his generals De Wett and Herzog. The Transvaal was represented by acting President Berger and generals Boerta, De La Rey, Fulun and Jan Smuts. President Kruger's telegram we heard about had been delivered encouraging them to continue the war and President Steyn once again castigated the Transvaalers who had considered surrender or some kind of peace. There was finally a majority vote in favour of continuing the war and two other decisions taken at the meeting. One was that General De La Rey should send a well-supplied commando led by General Smuts into the Cape Colony in an attempt to cause the long-hoped-for Cape Africana Rebellion. Just out of interest, in future podcasts, you'll hear how our Boer narrator, Denis Reitz, would bump into this commando by chance, along with his dirty dozen colleagues, as Martin Bossebrook calls them. The second decision was symbolic to declare 8th of August the day of thanksgiving and 9th of August as the day of reconciliation. It was an attempt to reinforce togetherness between the Free Stater and the Transvaala. A formal document was released which indicated the nature of their motivation, which basically said the governments of the ZAR and OFS, considering the measurable personal and material sacrifice that had been made, would continue to fight. No peace conditions would be accepted. That condemned thousands more women and children to death. Ironically, the number of soldiers dying on both sides had dropped away significantly and would continue to do so, but it was disease that would kill the newest generation of Boers from here on to May 1902. So we must end for this week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and send me an email through our website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until we meet again, goodbye. Daar in Marisalek ooit weer kinsel, my schaad het ek weer gekryg. En sonder gedal langs die moeier vierste val, het sy vroorlogsdage bleek. O bring my terug na die Oudtransval, daar waar my sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari.